This is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. Get along down the road. We got a long, long way to go. Scared to live, scared to die. We ain't perfect, but we try. Get along while we can. Always give love the upper hand. Paint a wall, learn to dance, call your mom, buy a boat, drink a beer, sing a song, make a friend. Can't we all get along? Brendan, so we're here Thursday, um, October 29th, five days out from the 2020 election. Uh, what are we talking about this week? Yeah, it's a big episode, and it's certainly a big week in our country. So we will talk about the election. That's what we're going to conclude with. Um, we'll briefly talk about the final presidential debate from from last week. Um, but we're going to kick it off by talking about the confirmation of the latest justice to the Supreme Court. And so Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed on Monday by a strictly party line vote, uh, 52-48. Susan Collins, uh, the Republican from Maine, voted no. Uh, But other than that, it was, like I said, strictly party lines. It's the first justice in 150 years to not receive any bipartisan support. Uh, which is significant and something I definitely you know want to talk about, but it's it's an historic nomination in a number of ways. Um, one, she's the only the fifth woman ever to be on the Supreme Court, uh, which is continues to be a big deal. We have you know three women on the Supreme Court, uh, which is continues to be the most that we've ever had. I've referenced this before. Not enough, but it's good to continue to have three women on the Supreme Court. And she is the justice that has been confirmed most closely to Election Day, which has certainly been the biggest source of controversy over the last last month. So I'll toss this to you because, generally speaking, I'm you know, pretty content with how everything turned out, but I imagine that you are not. So your thoughts on the entire process and you know, new, newly confirmed Justice Barrett. Yeah. Um... And I think we should come back to Justice Barrett, uh, sort of maybe towards the end of this. But I wanted to talk about the process and some of the discussions that we've had about this in the past. Um, I think you know one of the things that you mentioned and you, you really educated me on is is how um, how in many ways this did fall under historical precedent that uh, Senate and press <clears throat> Senate and President from the same party are you know likely to do something like this and then we sort of talked about um you know the suggestion that many democrats have made that um that they sort of change the makeup of the court potentially add justices you know change around the majority within the court um and i i think i agree with your premise that that sort of changing the rules of the game is you know not not only a a slippery slope but in in many ways a zero-sum game in that you know, once the Democrats do it, there's really nothing to stop the Republicans from doing it. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that I felt like is worth noting um, and that I wanted to get some of your thoughts on, I guess there are two things here. One, um, we specifically talked about the the case of FDR when FDR sort of brought up the idea of packing the court and that it was largely unpopular. I've recently done a little bit more reading on it and I think while 
it was uh, an extremely contentious issue, it probably wasn't as universally unpopular as you might think, in large part because the Supreme Court that FDR was dealing with was sort of universally striking down a lot of programs that he had put together for the New Deal, right? And so the idea for him was, um, all right, well, we're, he, and he came up with some like crazy rule that like we're going to add justices for everyone that's over 70 because the people who are 70 like are a little bit senile or something and they're slowing down the court. So it was clearly, you know, he had an ulterior motive. Um, he wanted a court that was more friendly to what he was doing. And some people were, you know, rightly calling that out. Like this seems a little hypocritical. Um, or not hypocritical, but a dangerous precedent in that um, if we change the makeup of the court just to suit the president, then all of a sudden we have changed sort of our uh, ideal system that does have three separate branches of government. Um, and I want to get back to that, and I, I know I'm going around in circles here. But the, the end result really was that his threat to expand the court got the court to... Uh, listen a little bit more closely to um, what the electorate had wanted, which was, you know, a large, large support for um, for his programs in the New Deal that included Social Security, um, included minimum wage regulations that did a lot of things that people at that time or just coming out of the Great Recession were really interested in, um, and that that court had previously struck down um, recent uh, cases that were sort of threatening to sort of unravel a lot of what he had did there. So um, I guess in, in my typical fashion of going way, way around, around the question, if the court continues to um, act in a fashion that is not, um, or not continues to, but if the new makeup of the court makes it such that it is not acting kind of on the, the will of the majority, um, which we know, right? So, you know, five of the last just five of the last nine justices appointed by presidents who lost the popular vote. Um, what does that mean for its role um, in society and in, in government? It's a really good question. I and I think that its role doesn't change. I think the role of the judicial system in general, the Supreme Court in particular, is to interpret the law and to decide if something's constitutional or not. So in FDR's case, yeah, you said it really well, that he wanted to change the makeup of the court and quote-unquote pack the court because they were striking down his his legislative initiatives. And you are quite right that the Congress at that point was nomi- nominated by Democrats, um, and FDR was a Democrat, and they were getting pushing through, uh, you know, really some seismic changes in our society. And changes that were supported by the majority of people because the majority of people are electing these Democrats to the Senate and to the House and to the presidency. But what I think it becomes dangerous then is the job of the Supreme Court and the judicial system in general is not to reflect the will of the majority. I think the founders set it up so that the majority, the the people elect their representative to the legislature and legislature passes laws, of course. But if those laws are not constitutional, it doesn't matter if people like them or want them to, to see them happen. The job of the, the court is to decide if they're constitutional. And there were four justices on the Supreme Court, an FDR Supreme Court that you kind of referenced, that decided that a lot of the programs weren't constitutional. And, and that's their job. And so I have no problem if the 
court doesn't reflect the will of society because I don't think that was ever their intended role. So, so that is um, uh, definitely a great point. Like, what is, or, or something that I think I'd like to talk a little bit more about. Like, what is the intention of, you know, why we have this separation of, of powers between the executive and the judiciary branch and obviously the legislative? Um, sort of the intent, like what our founding fathers we think were thinking of, what we learned about in civics class, and then what has actually played out. And then the other piece of it, um, only because I've recently learned about it, so obviously I need to need to share this with somebody, is that a lot of very similar cases that the same Supreme Court justices had struck down, um, you know, portions of the New Deal uh, were then upheld in similar cases, similar challenges brought to the court were then upheld largely by the same group of justices, primarily because they were like, FDR is going to screw up the entire Supreme Court if we don't show that we can do some of the things that he is interested in us doing. Um, so, in so like from just a politically from a politically motivated perspective, I think Biden when he comes out and says, "I want." to create a commission to study the court is kind of like uh, an indication, hey, Supreme Court, if you are here over the next 100, like he gave an 180 day timeline, which is in many ways to me saying that if I become president and I see that this court is acting like strictly along party lines, then I'm after 180 days, like I really should not, I don't think I won't have the support to potentially do some things here with the court. I think I think that's one point. And I think the other point is this, like <clears throat> we do know uh, the the point of lifetime appointments is so that you can be impartial meaning that you don't have to swing to the will of the people. You that like that is the ideal. But the problem is as we know in both directions this isn't strictly conservative or uh, a liberal piece, right? The Warren Court was in one direction and um, kind of what we were seeing in the 30s was was potentially in the other way, um, you know, too conservative or too liberal. But, you know, that ideal is a farce. I mean, you can say that based on what you've seen these last 30 days, right? We're talking about a lifetime appointment of somebody who's 48 or 49 yeah. years old, ran through in 30 days before an election. Like, that's not a process um, that kind of upholds the ideals in my mind that we have of the Supreme Court. So the first point you brought up, and just in case people aren't aware, uh, Biden and, and Harris had been pressed repeatedly over the last month about a potential court packing plan if, if they win the election. And they refused to answer the question several, many times really, whether it was on the debate stage and in interviews and rallies, uh, to the point that bothered me personally. And so eventually Biden comes out and says that he's going to create this, you know, commission to study the role of the court in society in, like you said, 180 days, potentially after he gets elected. And it's in some ways like a classic politician thing to do of like, you know, I'm getting a lot of pressure on the left that I won't come out and support this court packing plan to, you know, counter what Trump and McConnell and the Republicans are doing. But I also don't want to lose these moderates on the right that definitely this idea of court packing is not palatable to. So it's a classic politician thing to do, but it's also a smart thing to do. And so what I think that Biden's done is kind of given, one, given himself some time and wiggle room both directions. Uh, but two, he, he, has, he hasn't 
said that he's not going to do it, which I've made clear. I, I think it's a bad idea. But to your point of could it potentially you know, influence the court to make sure that they're not being political? You know, I don't think the court ever thinks they're being political. I think they, they interpret the laws and the Constitution according to their worldview. Unfortunately, the outcomes are often political. So I do think that there's something to be said for justices kind of being aware of the larger situation. And even in the last couple of years, I, I think once you know Gorsuch and, and Kavanaugh got appointed, there was a lot of like, wailing and gnash, gnashing of teeth on the left of like, oh my God, what does this mean for our country? And if you look at some of the decisions from the last term, a lot of the decisions, we don't need to dive too deeply into all of them, but a lot of them were fairly surprising. Even uh, a particularly notable case came up where the court decided that uh, businesses are not able to uh, fire people based on their sex. Uh, and it was a really big deal. And do you know who wrote that opinion? It was Gorsuch. It was Gorsuch, which is a Trump appointee. And you know, people on the right were all upset. But it's one of those things where I feel like people are like, oh, this justice was appointed by a Republican. We know how he or she is going to vote on these things. And, and oftentimes you don't, right? Like, it, you know, David Souter is like a classic example who retired a few years back, but he was report, um, appointed by H.W. Bush and ended up being like a staunch liberal justice. Uh, Anthony Kennedy was appointed by Reagan and ended up being the, the moderate vote for 20 plus years. And I think Roberts has done that to an extent too. I think Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, is very aware of the court's perception in the country. And he was the vote that upheld the Affordable Care Act a few years ago. It was a 5-4 vote, and Roberts was the deciding vote. So, I mean, I think a couple of things. One, the people that are already saying that, like, this is the end of our country and reproductive rights and civil rights are all, it's, it's all a mess now that Barrett's been appointed. That might turn out to be true. But we don't know that's true. And I think you, at some point, I mean, you got to kind of let things play out. And if things go that way, then you have absolutely every right to be upset. But let's pump the brakes on, on that to start. And then the second point you made was this ideal of the court and how when you appoint justices for life, you've afforded them protection to not be swayed by kind of the mob of the people, right? And I, I generally think that is a good thing. I would be open to having a conversation about having some sort of limit on these lifetime appointments. And so there's nothing in the Constitution that says that they're appointed for life. You know, we decided as a society that we thought it was a good thing. And again, I generally agree, but I don't necessarily think it's great that, you know, you could potentially have, and we often have had, you know, justices that are all in their 70s and 80s making all the decisions or in a case like, you know, ACB who who could potentially be on the court for 30 or plus years, right? Uh, and so I think if we're talking about potentially changing how the Supreme Court works, I'm not opposed to something like, hey, a term limit of 20 years or until you reach the age of 80 or something. That's something I, I think we could have a legitimate debate about. I, I as I made clear, I really dislike this idea of court packing because I think the slippery slope point you made, it, it leads us down a potentially really dangerous path where all of a sudden we have a Supreme Court with 50 people in it and it's just become another legislative body, which might seem ridiculous, but you know, if you look at our current society and climate, if, if Biden adds justices, there's no doubt that the next Republican president is going to do the same thing, right? So even though it kind of seems like, oh, we're the scare tactic out there, I, I don't think it'd be, <laughs> it's like that far-fetched to think that could happen. So do I think that it's, it's worth talking about like 
reforms to the court system? Absolutely. And I, I do hope that Biden's kind of political kick it down the kick the can down the road presidential commission on the courts is not just to buy himself some time, but actually could come back with some legitimate potential reforms for the court system. What do you think about the Republican strategy of using the courts to advance their agenda where they're unable really to get popular support for you know what you would see as their agenda not to say that they're not getting any support but like you know you were talking about reproductive rights i think most polls have you know the the right uh or, or sort of the right to an abortion over probably 60 to 65 percent that's probably at minimum i think it's probably even higher than that um people who are at least in favor of access to abortion to some degree, maybe not across like every single case, but certainly not, certainly not in the way that that maybe Amy Coney Barrett has talked about abortion in the past. What do you think about just the strategy of, you know, we know that the courts are a place that things happen that sort of ordinary people don't see, and so it's kind of this cover of night. Um, Avenue, and then on top of the fact that right, Trump lost the election, lost the popular vote, not the election, um, as did George Bush, and they're going to be in responsible his, in his first, in, in his, his first, first term. sorry, in his first term. That's correct. Because to be, I mean, this is not just, to, but to be clear, like Bush won the second term outright, and that's in that term he's when he appointed his Roberts and Alito. So. That's fair. That is an important distinction. All right, but, but yeah, the, the point, still, point the point still stands, and yeah. so this kind of two parts to that I think one if you're asking as a political strategy what I think about it I think it's a great strategy right like if you know that's the reason McConnell is so satisfied with himself right now you know in four years 220 federal justices three Supreme Court justices it's it's an unbelievable legacy it's the most Supreme Court justices justices since um, Carter's presidency and uh, I think maybe the most in total justice in one term since maybe back when LBJ was the Speaker of the House, I mean, the the Senate Majority Leader. So uh, Republicans have done a good job for their constituents in that sense. Do I think it's great for the country? No. And not to go back to this, but everything the Republicans have done in the last four years in terms of appointing justices has been, quote unquote, legal. They've played by the rules. They've followed the Constitution. They've done everything that, you know, they've used every avenue available to them. But the problem is, is that the system wasn't necessarily designed to be ramming through justices like this. The reason that they can is because, again, Harry Reid in 2013 eliminated the filibuster for federal justices, and then McConnell, as he had warned, eliminated the filibuster for Supreme Court justices. So I don't I don't necessarily think it's great for the country that we're able to just ram through these potentially extremist justices on either side. But I think the way the system was originally designed to work of like, hey, we need at least 60 votes to confirm any ju- any justice to the federal judiciary. Like, that's the system I would love to see back in place. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it is, right. Like you point out, it's successful. Um, but but how, like how, you know, at, at, at what expense? Like how anti-democratic, right? Um, like it just, you know, from the straight like democracy is majority gets to decide um like but like if if we're being like very by the book here like all of those republican senators were elected 
the rules had been changed by the Democratic Senate Majority Leader seven years ago. The Republicans played by those rules, and because they had a majority, they were able to put all these you know justices in place. Like they, you know, yeah. it's it's not it's not necessarily undemocratic by the rules. Philosophically, it's undemocratic, but that's that's a, yeah. that's a rules issue to me. Yeah, and I, and I th- and I think that's that maybe is the broader point that I was I was probably thinking of is that it's really not p- packing the court is not the right solution. The solution is to figure out where uh, our democracy fails to actually like reflect the will of the people. So potentially it's, you know, the power of the Senate in these cases is way too high, you know, relative to how senators are elected, right? It's two senators per state. Doesn't matter if your state is Wyoming with 600,000 people or California with 40 million people, we're using the Senate. And we know, you know, the huge geographies of the country are Republican, but nobody lives in those places. Um, not nobody. Not, sorry, <laughs> not, yeah. not no, relatively speaking, not numbers nobody, wise, but for relatively sure. speaking, yeah, yeah. right? Um, and when we're talking about the Supreme Court that does have, you know, equal, their rulings have equal ramification in places where there are very few people from a population density wise versus places that there are, you know, a ton of people, um, that's certainly something that we should look at. Obviously, the Electoral College, like if Democrats, I think, really want to sustain um, themselves into the future, it's not how do you change the current rules to suit yourselves today. It's recognizing that in many cases, um, especially socially, potentially not fiscally, um, there is a lot of support for the things that they want to do, um, but they can't do them because of like the current construct of the rules is not necessarily reflecting the will of the majority. Yeah, I, I think that's all fair. I, I think there are what I would consider reasonable solutions to this. So one, not that it's going to happen, I would love to see the 60 vote, the filibuster reinstalled. I think that would solve a lot of the problems and force you know more moderate justices because they would have to be palatable to at least some side you know yeah, of the electorate well, merrick garland was absolutely that, a, a more moderate person totally agree yeah. uh and then i think there are there are some other things too one which i alluded to earlier was that if we potentially put in term limits on supreme court justices so we would know relatively speaking when someone's term is up and that would place even more you know, emphasis on election. I think one of the hard things right now is that justices die, right? And you just don't know when it's going to happen. And certainly Ginsburg, you know, was, was trying to hang on as long as she could, but she dies during Trump's presidency. He gets to appoint it. Like, constitutionally, nothing wrong there. But if we knew that, hey, this presidential election, there's going to be three potential justices for this president to uh, install, then it becomes a central issue of the election. And I think that's what people can can go out and vote for if you really care about these things you want to vote for a president or a senate that like you know kind of reflects your own values and the third thing i would say is that ultimately it should be a battle of ideas and if democrats aren't thrilled with where the senate is right now then they need to go out into places where they're not currently successful and work to get senators elected in those states and i actually think that this is a you know a big kind of what Trump has done for the left is that he's opened up a lot of 
other states. And we're seeing there's two elections, Senate elections in Georgia right now that are toss ups. You know, Texas is becoming a more blue state. You know, there's, uh, you know, we have Susan Collins in Maine, a Republican that, that might lose. So Democrats, if they really want to press their case and feel like, hey, this is what the broader society feels, then they need to go into these states and get senators elected. Yeah, I think, I mean, probably a little easier said than done for a number of reasons, but um, agreed, their uh, approach has, I mean, you can argue this is a a big, not a flaw, but a challenge for American democracy is you do have urban centers with a certain set of challenges that are very, very different from what people in rural areas face, and so it's very hard to when you're talking about a solution potentially for a problem in a city, it just doesn't sound right or play right to people who don't live in those cities. So, and it's, you know, a large part of the divide um, in, in many ways is, is just on sort of this, the, the cultural divide between urban and rural areas. Yeah. I I mean, I totally agree with you. I'm just saying that it's not, it's not impossible. So you look at someone like Joe Manchin in West Virginia, like, couldn't be of a more red state. He's a moderate Democrat. John Tester in Montana, again, Mm -hmm. a very red state. So it's just for, I, I, not that you're doing this, but I hate that on the, on the left, sometimes you hear, like, you throw your hands up and you're like, well, the middle of the country doesn't agree with us. The Senate has too much power. There's nothing we can really do. It's, I don't, I don't buy that. Like, if, if you really feel like your ideas are the best, you can find candidates in those states to, to elect to the Senate. And when you are elected to the Senate, then you get to make the rules, just like McConnell has been doing the last four years. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that that's that's definitely fair. I w- would could probably still contest the fact that I think in in many ways the Senate does still have too much power. Yeah, I potentially disagree with that, but as I've alluded to before, I think we should have a whole conversation about the electoral college and, and Senate. It's it's just a larger conversation that we can have down the road. Uh, but a few more things before we wrap up this segment um, about Amy Coney Barrett. I one, I don't know if you watched or listened to the hearings at all, but I thought it was. Disgraceful is not that's too strong of a term, but it was just like everyone's grandstanding at that point. You know, like like none of the senators are actually trying. The purpose, theoretically, of you know bringing the justice in front of the judiciary committee is to you know ask her questions and see if she's qualified and see how she's going to rule on things. And and you know you just have a bunch of senators up there yelling about you know reproductive rights and, and the Affordable Care Act. And so I, I think it's it's disappointing where we are. It's not surprising where we are that you know as I alluded to before. You know, this is the first time since Edwin Stanton in 1865 that a justice hasn't received one vote from the opposing party. And that, that's not a good look. And a lot of that is Republicans' fault for trying to jam it through. But it's also uh, it, it's a disappointing state of affairs for, for where we are. Uh, but last point on Barrett, because I don't – she's kind of been obscured in, in like because of what Trump and McConnell have done and just the whole partisan divide that we have right now. And you made this point a few episodes ago where at the minimum you know that these justices are qualified and really intelligent people and i don't want to let that slip because you know she is only the fifth woman to ever be on this court and to just you know chalk it up as some like republican stooge it wouldn't be fair to her and i think she's like an incredibly imp- impressive lady as it's been you know throughout the media she's got you know seven children she's raising this large family as a federal circuit judge now a supreme court justice she's 48 years old which is wild to be that young and to be at the highest level of your profession and rbg became a feminist icon for a lot of women out there and, and for for america as a whole 
in a different way, I think Amy Coney Barrett is an icon for a lot of people and a hero for a lot of people as you know a conservative woman who's incredibly intelligent, uh, hardworking, is able to raise a family and also ra- rise to the top of her profession. And while she's never going to get the same hero accolades because she doesn't believe in certain things that the left believes in, you know she is a trailblazer in her own right and is is going to be a hero and a role model for you know, probably millions of women in our country, as well she should be. So uh, while this process has not been great for our country, I, I do want to at least take a moment and, and celebrate, you know, her achievements. And we'll see what kind of justice she is. But, you know, she's on our court now. And, you know, we're gonna have to live with that for the next 30 years. <laughs> I guess so. Working nine to five, what a way to make a living So we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the second and final presidential debate after we spent so long talking about it a couple of weeks ago. It was an entirely different debate. Uh, in, in some ways, I guess probably in all ways, it was a good thing. You know, it was, it was a better debate, <laughs> certainly more civil and somewhat more substantive than our previous Very one. Very low bar. Yeah, it was incredibly low bar. But uh, actually, I, I will say before tossing it to you that Van Jones on CNN made this point that I thought was really good where he said every election brings in new people and whether it's you know America the millions of Americans that have reached 18 in the last four years or new immigrants to our country people that have never voted before never tuned into these debates before and you know if they saw that first debate you would just be like oh what what an embarrassment like we were like we all were but at least now for all those new people and for even as a reminder to all of us like that's kind of what a debate should look like it was i mean we still have these you know two old men who are not the best orators and are maybe not the wonkiest people out there and certainly not the most civilized you know two guys going but that's what a debate theoretically should look like yeah i mean i think there was certainly a lot more substantive content um this go around that that's probably worth examining a bit into um i I want to pull on your point a little bit of the, you know, the sort of the first time people kind of using a debate as a, as a, as a foray into, you know, what is American politics kind of about. Um, and I think one of the things that, that stood out to me in this debate um, was that it was less about potentially convincing undecided voters or less about trying to um you know win with ideas over somebody else's ideas and more about using fear as a tactic to motivate potential voters for you to make sure that they go out and vote um so in in many senses it was less like you know this is my opponent's policy and this is how i think our policy is better if you don't really know uh much about the policy like you know this is what it is it it was very much about um my opponent is going to do this like i i thought both candidates seemed to know 
what the other plans to do with this country far more than they knew what they planned to do. They're not policy guys. With the, guys yeah, yeah, I mean, certainly not policy guys, but it was like a very explicit intent that like, especially on, on Trump's side. And I'm curious to hear how you feel about this because it may just be the way that I was listening to it. But anytime she would ask like, President Trump, like, how do you, you know, how do you plan to deal with the coronavirus? Like, how does your foreign policy differ from, well, you know what? Hunter Biden took $3 million from Russia. Like, that was, like, what I started to hear in the middle of the debate over and over again. And then it was, you know, other things about Joe is going to shut down the economy. And, uh, you know, if you let them take charge, then this is going to happen. And very, very little on, like, here's what I plan to do. Yeah, it's been the biggest failure of the Trump campaign, in my opinion, is that they have failed to articulate a vision for the next four years. And so what he's done is, to your point, he's just doubled down on the fear rhetoric and saying like, well, you don't want this guy in office. These are all the things he's going to do. He's going to take away your guns. He's going to take away your oil. He's you know going to allow chaos and riots in your, in your neighborhoods, right? Uh, and it's he's really doubled down on that even more in the last couple of weeks where he seemed to concede that like, hey, I'm not going to win any of these moderate voters, these white suburban women per se. What I need to do is get my base out even more than before. And so what I've seen even just reading about strategy is that they're going into Trump territory and getting more of those votes out. And so there was, I just read this the other day where there's a county in Pennsylvania that uh, like 80% of Republicans voted in the last election, all for Trump, obviously. And they, their goal is to get 90%. Old. So 80% is super high anyway, but their goal is to get 90%. That's their strategy for winning right now is to turn out even more Trump voters. And you'll see this uh, where, you know, you kind of mentioned earlier where, we, where the campaigns are going for their campaign stops and rallies. Trump's not necessarily going to swing states. He's going to these places or even if he's going to swing states, he's going like deep into the heart of red country and trying to get more of his base energized and more of those voters out. So yeah, he at this point he's abandoned the you know, let's try to get the moderates and his whether it's the the fear tactics or uh, his general rhetoric is to I gotta get every single person who believes in in me and in the values I espouse out to vote on Tuesday. Yeah, yeah, and I and I think. I think in many ways it's not just a Republican tactic. I think across the board, I think we talked about this when we started our podcast, is that there was a huge, you know, as many people didn't vote as voted for either Biden or Trump. And what the two political campaigns essentially said was, we're not going to convince the Trump voters to vote blue. Like maybe we'll get a few of those ones who kind of very reluctantly voted for Trump. What we're our better avenue is to find all of those unregistered voters, voters who've registered in the past and didn't vote, and go and like hound them and make sure that they get out and vote. And whatever reasons they had for not voting before, we need to make sure that they vote this time, um, which is certainly great. We've always talked about democracy is better when one people engage in it, and when two like the you know more and more people engage in it um, because you know, people get invested in outcomes and it's, it's really, um, in order to have a healthy democracy, democracy, you have to have a lot of participation. I think that's certainly a valid, um, avenue to, to go down, but 
uh, it's it, what it allows for is um, a discussion or or more of a pandering towards towards the base because the people that you sort of can count on um, making sure that they get out is your number one priority and then hoping that like people who may or may not like all of your positions like your positions more than somebody else but you're never really sort of figuring out like where are the compromises that I'm willing to make to try and attract some of these un whatever the quote-unquote undecided voter I feel like you know, especially in this election that um, undecided voter is is almost non-existent the reality is really you know there are people who are going to vote for you or they're not going to vote at all and your task is to make sure that they go out and vote yeah so kind of sticking with like the overall tone of the debate you know it felt I don't know I, this is a bad word coming off the the last debate but it felt a little bit boring to me you know like and I guess like boring is not the worst thing but I, I don't know I was just kind of thinking back the best series of debates presidential debates in my lifetime in my opinion were the Obama Romney debates in 2012 and I just think you know Obama is just such a dynamic speaker but he's also like super intelligent policy wise he was able to really like articulate his points and do it in a really engaging way and Romney is you know, at least equally as knowledgeable policy-wise and in his own way, I think, is an engaging speaker. So, yeah, Trump and Biden just aren't those guys, right? Like, Trump's entertaining as a showman and, you know, Biden's, like, kind of the, the steady Joe and he's just, you know, he's that guy next door that, that you know, you, you kind of you want to... You know me. <laughs> right, you know me, exactly. And that, that's really his case. So, I I don't know, like, there were a few moments from this debate that, I, that stuck, out, stuck out to me, but for the most part, I was like... I don't know. This debate's not doing a whole lot for me personally. And to your point is, you know, I, I don't think it's doing a whole lot for the country. Like, I think I saw something like the last 34 polls after the debate, it moved like 0.1% from Trump yeah, for which Trump. Which is like within the margin uh, well, of error. <laughs> well, within the margin of error. Yeah, but it's just like that debate didn't do anything for people. Right. Like, And to be totally honest, Trump needed this debate three weeks ago. He needed it in his first debate where... He was like a normal person that made some decent points and that maybe some moderate voters could could have come around. But after his absolute debacle in the first debate, like this this debate didn't matter. It didn't it didn't move the needle at all. Uh, but a few points that I, I, I want to bring up that uh, I thought were uh, at least kind of interesting. There was uh, a point earlier where you know Joe had clearly tried to like rein himself in. Oh. <laughs> yeah, so like Trump's going after Hunter Biden, and uh, Biden at one point is like, "Oh, you know, I don't want to go get into what's happening with his buddy. I shouldn't. Uh, I will." <laughs> and he gets after Rudy Giuliani, right? And it's like it's kind of it's a, one kind of a cheap shot, but also a fair shot to take. Yeah, in some ways. So I guess it's not a cheap shot, but uh, it was just funny. And as Trump went on in the debate, like as you mentioned, he was like pretty in control for a while, and then he started getting off in his Hunter Biden. Nobody knows what he's talking about, right? Yeah. You know, talk about you know, Moscow mayors and stuff. Uh, and they, they just, like, couldn't guess much as, like, their sides wanted them. They just, like, couldn't help themselves. And that always kind of – that made me chuckle a few times in the debate that yeah. happened. I, I, I so have to believe that, like, Biden's camp was like, all right, if Trump says something about Hunter Biden, this is how you respond. You say that Rudy Giuliani is now an agent for Russia. <laughs> Whatever, right? And, like – Clearly, that was like, all right, when do I get to use this line? He hasn't <laughs> said Hunter Biden yet. Yeah, and just explodes on that. I thought, yeah, I thought that was funny. I did think in some ways it like, I think it, yeah, it definitely didn't land the way Joe Biden might have hoped. 
but it was like enough to like you know Trump uh, Trump gets a little bit of a crumb on this thing and he like he can't let it go for like we ask you about your taxes what about what about Hunter Biden we ask you about your relationship with China what well, what about Hunter Biden <laughs> and it's like it was one thing after another um, that just kept going back to the same point I I I guess I have to wonder is like the the like I I know the drain the swamp thing was something that he said a lot which I always thought was was pretty ridiculous but is that something that like plays well for him that like that Biden might actually be the like the corrupt one out of the two yeah, of them it was quite the swing yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you think you think I'm corrupt you're more corrupt yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, classic Trump you're yeah, like yeah. Uh, does that play well uh, I think like the idea plays well again how many times have we said this that you know it, coming from Trump in the swamp that he's created like in his own right and how much how many millions of dollars he's funneled to his own companies through like federal taxpayer dollars is ridiculous on his face but does like the drain the swamp message play well yeah it's fine but again people know who Joe Biden is <laughs> like I, I can't imagine anyone out there was like oh now I now I think he's corrupt you know this guy like I didn't right. I didn't think so before but you got you got me convinced now so whatever uh, a, a couple other things that I thought were interesting one you know, you mentioned they brought up Trump's taxes, and he was like, "You know, I, I talked to my accountant. They're coming up. <laughs> They're coming up." And it reminded me—I don't know if you watch South Park at all—but uh, they did like a Game of Thrones trilogy. It's like my favorite three South Park episodes. And you were you watch Game of Thrones? Nah. Uh, that's that's disappointing. I'm sure some people out there did. <laughs> uh, and one of the premises of Game of Thrones, the first few seasons, is that the dragons are coming, right? And we keep hearing and waiting for these dragons. And the South Park episode is pretty much like George R. R. Martin, the author of Game of Thrones, being like, "They're coming. You just gotta wait. They're like, they're coming." And it just reminded me so much of Trump being like, "Yeah, the, the tax returns are coming, dude. You've been saying this for five years. They're not coming. Like, <laughs> what, why do you keep, why even bother to say it? Just yeah. say they're not coming. Like, to yeah. be up there like, yeah, I talked to my accountant last week. They're coming out." get out of here man that's not coming uh but i did think biden landed a, a clean shot it was one of those like quick jabs that i don't know if like a lot of people caught but he was like yeah that those tax returns will probably come out at the same time as your infrastructure plan and i was like "Ooh, that's a good one joe yeah. touche yeah yeah no uh it is it's it is a little i i would think it would be a little bit alarming the like the ease with which he he can make up these things on a stage that he's on and just have no, I you know I prepay millions and millions and millions of taxes, and you've been taking millions and millions and millions of dollars from Russia. And Joe's like, I've literally like everybody has all of my tax returns, like all my bank accounts, like all of that money is you, you know where it's coming from and where it's going, like it's all out there. I think, and this is potentially going to be unpopular for for anybody who generally thinks the way that I do. I think it is a fair question to ask like how did hunter biden get this job in ukraine like that definitely doesn't sound right um to anybody but at the same time in the grand scheme of things like politicians getting you know the like nepotism is like i mean it's as american as freaking american but you know as apple pie like it's it's something that we've sort of accepted as part of the way of the world for like a long period of time not necessarily meaning that that it is a right thing but also i think it would be a huge stretch to say that there was you know so major kind of political motivations around what was going on it's like I, I got a connection i can get my son this job here whatever i'm gonna do that like people are doing that all over the place and i think donald trump of all people would you know would ne should never be the one to you know 
huge throwing stones if you're living in a glass house kind of moment. Right. Um, so, like, I, I actually made a note as I was watching the debate, and I just said, I just can't imagine people care about this. Yeah. Like, and it's just like when you're throwing, like you said, we're throwing mud and stones at each other's families, some of it, some of which might be legitimate, but, like, that, what are we doing here? Like, yeah. this is a chance for, you know, you're running to be president of the United States, and you're talking about each other's kids. Like, who out there really cares about yeah. that? Yeah, Biden, that's like, yeah. Biden did come out and say that. He's like, nobody cares about your family or my family. Like, they care about their family. Um, which I think is is another important point that if we want to talk about some of the substantive things, right? Like, the there is a pretty big divergence in kind of what, you know, the go-forward strategy is with the coronavirus. Like, on, on the Trump side, it's more like, let's open the economy and kind of hope for the best we'll get a vaccine the people who are getting infected are mostly younger and you know if if we're trying to take the rational side of things i think there's a lot a lot in there that makes no sense to me but um versus more of a more of a measured approach one that probably overreacts on the side of caution to keep things locked down and and you know which has a, a real impact of um Reducing economic activity, there's almost no way around that. Um, I think I think that that is something that, right? Like I think people would have liked to have learned a little bit more of. Um, I mean, I, I think unfortunately for for Trump, Biden's probably coming out on top just in insofar as like he can have a more measured approach because his beige a measured or, or, or nuanced approach approach to the virus because his base like democratic voters are in favor of a lot of these measures whereas uh, trump has honestly spent the last nine months kind of like delegitimizing the virus while also saying i'm taking it seriously like just kind of going this back and forth and so he's got a lot of people who don't believe in its seriousness um but i think that that like you know, is it constitutionally viable to, to have a national mass mandate? Like, I think those are interesting questions that people would have liked to have seen um, debated out a little bit. Yeah, I thought Trump was better uh, on this subject this time. He, he said, uh, you know, we can't lock ourselves in a basement like Joe does. He's lucky he's been able to do that. He's made a lot of money from somewhere. You know, it's like it was a classic Trump line that was actually pretty good, right? You, you knock Biden for being in his basement all the time. You also kind of hit him with a zinger about like him being corrupt. But also, it's a fair point that, you know, it's a privilege to be able to quarantine and lock yourself in, in basements. And, and like a lot of people, American workers can't do that. And Trump continued, he said, you know, 99% of people recover, fair. We can't close up our nation. You're not gonna have a nation. It's not my fault. It's not Joe's fault. It's China's fault. Check, like pe people like that. People are losing their jobs. There's you know, rising alcoholism, drugs, abuse. The cure cannot be worse than the problem itself. Fine. Like to your point, there's an argument to be made for that. I mean, he's just it's 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 hard to make it after all of the things that you've said he's done over the last nine months. But I I think if that is like a kind of a conservative Republican argument, fine, I can buy that argument. Right. Right. Yeah. I I I, I mean, I suppose I do want to talk just maybe a second or two about about foreign policy. Um, but just to wrap up the the coronavirus section, I did think it was interesting that he he really and and i think i did actually hear a bit on fox news but using the like i got infected by the coronavirus yeah. as like a badge of honor and like i i gotta say that that to me was just absolutely mind-boggling 
and the fact that he's like bragging about all the treatment that he got as if ordinary Americans have access to any of that, especially when you're trying to like undo the Affordable Care Act and like reduce access to health insurance for a large portion of the population. It's like absolutely asinine to be like, you know, I, you know, some call it a cure. Like you got like helicoptered out. Just the helicopter alone would have literally bankrupted probably 50% of Americans. Like that is, and I, I thought it was a bit of a missed opportunity for Biden not to pounce on, a little bit on that. Like, yes, you recovered, sir. 230,000 people did not, in large part because they don't have access to the meta, you know, the president's health care. Yeah, that would have been a good point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would have been touche. Um, but I did want to talk to you a little bit about foreign policy because this is potentially another area where, where I might be saying some unpopular things. But this is an area where Trump actually provided probably one of the more uh, differentiated stances um, on foreign policy in general than any you know past uh, Democrat or Republican that I can think of, right? He was very much anti-war. Now, what he's done in the past four years not necessarily the same uh, thing, but I, for one, you know, the the idea of constantly being in a in a cold, you know, almost a new Cold War with Russia, starting, you know, m- more types of, you know, sanction programs on North Korea, like a lot of these uh, sort of policies that say we, we're not going to engage with these people, even though they are potentially... Um, uh, I don't know. Dangerous is, I think, a, a little bit of a loaded word, but um, they're it, not good for the people of their country. They're n- they're not. They're not. I, and I and I really I'm, I don't mean this as a as a, a, a like a defense of. Uh, I know. Of, I know. This yeah. isn't a defense of dictators, but your no. your point is well taken. Yeah, that that there you know there are different approaches to dealing with people like that, right? And our approach uh, approach as a country has been. We're going to sanction the crap of them and we're going to talk about them as if like they can't hear like we're going to call you know when joe biden starts calling him a thug yeah he very well might he might well be that like he is that in many in many ways but if you are the leader of a nation and you need to meet with the leader of another nation which he is also that right he's the leader of north korea they have nuclear weapons like you can't go into a discussion with them calling them a thug and i think that that's an area that, that Trump brings an interesting approach. And I would love to have like kind of heard that a little bit more um, because I think there are honestly some some valid criticisms of the uh, like Obama Biden approach from from 2008 on. Yeah, and this is goes back to what I said earlier about the Trump campaign's failure to articulate a, a clear message going forward to the four years. And some of that is the campaign's fault, and some of that is the candidate's fault not being able to stay on message. But I. Uh, if the Trump era is to end in five days or you know in, in two months, that's a conversation I would love to have a longer uh, you know talk about because he has changed the narrative around you know American intervention in in you know foreign entanglements, and in my opinion, it's been a, a good change. Uh, so that's something I would like to have a larger conversation about. But everything that you said would be like a pro like pro Trump points if, you know if he had made them. Uh, there's kind of two more things I want to bring up from the debate. One that you just touched on was that I think Trump did a better job criticizing Biden's time with Obama. And he did it in kind of two ways. One, hitting him for being in Washington for 47 years, you know, fact. And then two, 
like what have you done about it so biden is coming out you know when he does talk policy has you know all these opinions and trump's kind of repeated response on the debate stage was well why didn't you do it right like you've been here for forever you you were you know the number you know, two in command of this country for eight years. Like, why didn't you do all of these things that you say you're going to do? And I, I think that's a really fair criticism. And Biden at one point said, particularly Republican Congress. Yeah, but he when you know they were getting into the battle over cages, like the horrible thing that are happening at the border, and you know, Trump is is you know, I don't even I don't even know how have the words to say what he's done to to migrant families, but. Trump's point was that, like, the Obama administration for the first ones to have built the cages, which is true. Um, they weren't used like Trump has used them, but that's not a bad point. And the Obama administration, as I'm sure you're aware, deported records a number yeah. of people, like, far more than President Bush did. And it's a fair point to hit him on. Like, Biden's the number two guy there, and <laughs> you were not an immigrant-friendly, you know, administration. And I thought it was interesting from Biden. He said, yeah, we took too long to get it right. This time I'll be president. I was like, ooh, interesting. And I think that's it's not a bad tact for a vice president to take, be like, hey, I wasn't necessarily making the decisions there. But it's the first time it was subtle that I've heard him kind of like wanted – it's always been the, the Obama-Biden administration. Like that's how Biden has run for two years of like tying himself every opportunity to Barack and his accomplishments. But this time it was kind of like I'll be president. I'll make better decisions. And I was like, that's like an interesting – the first subtle dig I've heard at Obama for from Biden. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that um, yeah I mean I, I I think I I I think there are a couple things to say about that one I think during the primary season you heard a couple of times where uh, you know people were critical of Biden within the Obama administration and there was definitely that like uh, you know I know Obama was popular but like if he's being criticized for something like that's also him not me. Right. Um, I think I think this tact though of criticizing, and I see it from Republicans now a ton. Like, well, you did the crime bill. In many ways, that to me is absolutely absurd. First of all, the crime bill passed with essentially a hundred percent bipartisan support. In in other ways, like the crime bill and a lot of what was happening with immigration is like a Democratic like olive branch to like Republicans like. Hey, yeah, but you know, just so you know, we're also like we're we're throwing people in jail and we're kicking people out of the country. So like, you should also be happy with us, right? Like those aren't ever been at the top of democratic or progressive agendas. They are things that Democrats do because they think it helps them win over like the moderate vote, and they're doing it to appease the right, right? Like I think Biden did mention <clears throat> something about the Central Park Five, which is. Uh, I think a very like you know don't talk to me about the crime bill when you're out there post posting billboards about how we should execute these kids who apparently didn't you know commit any crimes right and then um and yeah I, I mean I think I think that strategy is certainly one that um I certainly one that got me when I first heard it like oh man like I I definitely did not know that Biden and Obama together had, you know, deported more people than really anybody else before them. Um, but when I think about it, in large part, it is some of the thing. like Obama did a lot of this centrist stuff because he was doing what he was doing on health care, right? Like that was such a contentious issue. I think he really looked for ways that he could kind of under the rug do things that he thought would appease the right um, without 
you know, and and obviously like he did he did uh, benefit from the fact that a lot of people in in media and stuff like that overlooked a lot of what he was doing um, in in other areas because they wanted to you know sort of praise stuff about healthcare or they were just you know co- you know kind of covering other issues whereas the Trump presidency I mean al- almost everything that he's done has been under a microscope I think that's sort of objectively fair to say um, and you know we talked about this before I actually think that that's a good thing not a bad thing but um, I don't really know where I was going with yeah so like <laughs> last last couple of points here one that Trump's statement that he was the least racist person in the room oh, was yeah. laugh, laugh out loud hilarious. Like, <laughs> Something that only somebody says who's most likely the most racist exactly, person. Exactly. You texted room. me saying that. Like, <laughs> you don't have to say that you're least, the least like, racist person unless you are the most racist person, right? Uh, but also something that he totally believes. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. He's sitting there with a, a black mo- woman moderator and saying that I'm the least racist person yeah. in the room and, and believes it 100%, yeah. like classic narcissism. All right, but the last uh, policy thing that I did want to bring up, and it happened towards the end. And I thought it's actually pretty significant. What happened was that Trump was trying to goad Biden into uh, saying kind of negative things about the energy industry. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he pretty much says, like, he's going in on fracking because, you know, he desperately wants to win Pennsylvania. And then says, you know, Biden's going to move us away from oil. And Biden says, yeah, I am. And Trump, it, class, it was a really good reaction, but you know how he is with his face and everything. He's like, ooh, ooh, that's a big statement. That's a big statement. He just, it was a big statement. And... I actually kind of applaud Biden for making it. I think it's one of the few times in the debates or really in, in Biden's campaign where he has like really come out and expressly said like what's a semi-controversial opinion and maybe it's not controversial on the left, but if you're going to move us away from oil in, if you become president in the next four years, then tell us you're going to. I'm totally fine with that and I think it's a good thing for the country, but I just... I think he let it slip, and he probably didn't mean to. He kind of got goaded into it by Trump, but it it's it's a big deal for a president to come out and say, like, yeah, I am actively going to move us off of oil and into you know renewable energy. Yeah, I mean, I think in large part he could say that because there is some support in the kind of the corporate, like what we call like the energy majors, like Chevron and Exxon and BP are all looking for ways to start to wean their businesses off of oil because I think the corporate world knows that the the tea leaves or whatever the the writing is on the wall at this point with climate change um you know there are only a, a select handful of politicians and and people that they're able to um convince that that this is not something that we need to tackle but i i do absolutely agree that you know as he was saying he's like there was part of him that was like, oh, should I say this? Or maybe I shouldn't say that. And I think also part of him was like, if I say this now, Trump's all he's going to talk about. Is he's <laughs> trying to ban oil. Yeah, he yeah. wants to destroy all the jobs. And I thought it was interesting too because he, t- I mean, it's very similar convers, you know, very similar tactics to what he had in 2016 with the coal industry and what what Hillary Clinton had said, like you know how we like she said we're going to put coal miners out of work. Um, the idea was that like we're gonna transition them from yeah. coal to renewable energy, but that was completely lost on <clears throat> anybody who heard Trump talk about that afterwards because he's very effective in his way of just like hammering home. Just like I'm not gonna, you know, fact check me or not doesn't matter. I'm just gonna keep saying the exact same thing over and over and over again, and that's all that my base is gonna hear. And so whatever your facts are, don't doesn't really matter. 
Um, but but definitely, uh, you know, a, a really important statement. I think for many people who have been following um, climate change and have been like hoping for real substantive legislation to address it here in this country, um, hearing something like that is like, yeah, like you said, like among people on the left, it doesn't really mean anything, but certainly um, is bold in that in how you know half the country might interpret something like that. Yeah. So, like I, like we said from from the jump, this debate I don't think changed anything, and you know the polls in the last week have shown that, and not to mention that you know tens of millions of people had already voted before the right. debate, right? So, uh, some interesting points to talk about, but in the grand scheme of things. You know, nothing's changed, and you know, now we're five days out. What I'm fighting for is worth far more than silver and gold. What I'm fighting for is a chance to unite the past. With a Bravo's coming home at last, fighting together for life. So five days out, the home stretch here. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, what do you think? I think there's only two possibilities on, you know, the election night. Come One, from behind Joe Jorgensen? <laughs> I wish. Uh, so I think it's either a Biden landslide that we know or it's a close Trump win. I, I, I don't see Biden eking out a win here. Uh, I think... We've mentioned this repeatedly on this podcast, but there are so many states in play for Biden. You know, he's down in Georgia today. Harris has been in Texas the last few days. There's, you know, besides Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, like there is Arizona and Iowa and North Carolina and Georgia and Florida and Maine. Like it's there are so many states in play for Biden. I could easily see him rolling to like a 300, 325 electoral college win that we know definitively on, on, on Tuesday night. On the other hand, and I don't think we can discount this, is that, you know, Trump voters are going to show up on Election Day and all of these toss ups. When I talk about Texas and Georgia and Florida and Pennsylvania and Ohio, they all fall in Trump's category, and he wins a, a, sh- a second shocking election. Yeah, um, I almost like don't want to don't want to speculate anymore. I feel like I'm getting too close. I might jinx something, but um, I think there are you know a couple of non-election related related events going on that are potentially impacting the election. So we have like this major hurricane that's like destroying stuff down in Louisiana today. Um, in Iowa, COVID cases rising are forcing um, a number of polling locations to close. Um, I think, yeah, there are a lot of uh, like X factors that really almost don't have anything to do with politics um, in this, you know, one of a kind, once in a generation, hopefully years, um, that we are that we're sort of finding ourselves living through um from a prediction standpoint i think one of the things that has been interesting to me um just in kind of listening to to different podcasts about uh how different campaigns are are operating is that sort of the ability for those who are not in power to or kind of the the energy and the motivation for those who are not in power to go out and get voters. Did you watch the Daily Show um, last night? 
No. Trevor Noah was talking about this. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, th- I, I was more thinking of um, the New York Times has a podcast called The Daily, and they were talking to uh, a gentleman who was in Arizona, <clears throat> and he would spent, like, a ton of time registering um, Latino voters there. And, you know, one of the – I think the stat was he had, like, within – six months or something registered something like 200 to 300,000 people to vote and he had this he just dropped this very casual line he's like yeah amazing what you can do if you like stay up you know night and day for you know three months straight and you, you like you don't sleep and you just like keep keep at it and I think you don't have that kind of motivation unless you are sort of seeing uh, a potentially like a cataclysmic event with um with an election like this. And I think, and I'm, not to say that, you know, many evangelical voters haven't been out there, but I mentioned this before. I think in many ways, some of them will think like, hey, we have the six to three majority. Amy Coney Barrett is confirmed. We've nominated all these judges. Can we, you know, think about anything else uh, related to this guy's character? Like Joe Biden's the guy who goes to church every Sunday, not Donald Trump, right? So I'm hopeful in many ways that, um, a lot of the sort of assaults on conservative beliefs and values that they have perceived under previous democratic administrations hopefully have been addressed and that people are thinking beyond some of those single issue um, challenges to voting potentially for Hillary Clinton in 2016, I think. Um, For that reason, I'm hopeful that that it it could be something like a landslide and i've said this before i think it has to be a landslide um regardless of you know how the math works out and whether or not joe biden could win you know a a close election i think just in general for the country as a whole um it will be better if the if the winner and i'm hoping obviously that it's joe biden wins in a landslide yeah, and at the risk of sounding foolish and being like the Nate Silver of 2016, I, I think it's going to be. Uh, while I don't want to underestimate Trump and Republican campaigns' ability to, to get their votes out on, on Tuesday, uh, I think that despite all these worries about mail-in ballots and having to wait days or weeks, I think we're going to know on Tuesday night. Uh, I would say Pen- Pennsylvania is the state to watch. If Trump wins Pennsylvania, it might be a little drawn out. If Biden wins Pennsylvania, I, I think it's over and, and it's about to be a landslide. Um, so we'll see what happens. Uh, down the ballot, in terms of you know federally, at least, uh, Democrats are you know, almost assuredly going to keep the House and probably extend their majority there. And then the, the Senate's a toss-up. It's, it's going to be fascinating. I, I mentioned some of those races in, in Georgia and, and Maine and Colorado and in a number of you know purplish states earlier. And it'll be fascinating. I think my ideal world, we get a Biden presidency and a Republican Senate. Um, I think that would be that would be good for the country, good for Washington. But yeah, I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, a Trump second term and a Democratic Senate may lead to an impeachment at six this time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's there's a lot of possibilities. I don't know. I feel like it was a couple weeks ago where I was like, it was after the first presidential debate where I was like, I don't think this is going to end well. You know, I've become more optimistic. I, I, I'm really hopeful that, you know, things are going to go okay and, you know, everyone's going to be okay. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, um, I think 
I really hope that even sort of McConnell said that if Trump loses this presidency, like he will concede or whatever, which Trump has not come out and said. And I think that's definitely a dynamic um, that that potentially leads to unrest. I sort of learned recently that the you know president's concession or sorry the losing candidate's concession speech is more or less a long-standing tradition that is really in many ways like a cornerstone of our democracy to be totally fair hillary did not give one four years ago the the, the night of the night of no no yeah i mean sure al gore also didn't until it went to the courts right in in 2000 but eventually first of all they're not sort of there are no proud boys to stand back and stand by for, for those it's gone way off. Right. No, 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 no. But, but yes, all right. Yeah. As I as I am wont to do, frequently the mind wanders. But the I think the point is that if we're going to talk about an additional sort of layer to why this election is um, different in some ways than previous elections is that there is this prospect of uh, you know an incumbent president saying that I didn't lose if he did lose right um, and what are, what do we really do there what avenues do we have and what does that mean for the country because you've seen in other places where whether the election was fair or not hard sometimes hard to say but when the um, the losing candidate says I you know I didn't lose this election whoever won should stand down it leads to a lot of problems and we have been spared of that in many ways we think about our democracy as a model because that's not a part of it um but trump's one of those characters that you don't really know he's he's like the definition of a wild card there and i'm hoping that there are enough people on the Republican side of things that can add some pressure because in many ways that was sort of what was talked about like he's going to be president and other Republicans are kind of going to make him more presidential and obviously we've seen the result of the last four years the exact opposite has happened they've all sort of bended to his will so that will be that could be something um, interesting to look out for yeah I don't have too much to add to that but there's some sort of like world election com- commission uh probably based out of the un or something like that where they have full-time staffers that go to generally third world or like post-soviet countries to ensure fair elections and they've sent like a number of people to the united states and like come out with a report about you know warning about potential issues after after this election and i, I read today you know there are certain cities that are already starting to board up some of their stores and, and worried about riots either way you know so that's scary to think about uh but again knock on wood hopefully everyone is able to be safe out there and votes uh, if i gave you a line of biden 325 you taking the over or the under i'll take the under but maybe not by much i think it'll be like a do something all right well we'll see um everyone if you haven't voted yet make sure you get out and vote on election day it's a great day it, it really is I, I love election day when the the feeling of going and voting personally and then also like staying up all night and watching like all the coverage and they call these states and you see them all come up and you're doing the math i i think it's it's fascinating and um you know i'm, I'm really excited for it
I voted already, but I I hear that. Uh, I hear the excitement. Cheers. Cheers. Let's try.